It's Litopia Daily, the web's first daily bulletin about writing and publishing. And now, here's Peter Cox. Hello, everybody. It's Thursday. The publishing world is still reeling with shock from the news of the death of publishing news in the UK. Um, but what I'd like to do is to get back to what I was talking about for most of this week before the bombshell dropped. And that's writer's health. It's encouraging you to get away from the keyboard, just put the keyboard down, so move away from it, and get into the gym and get a little bit healthier. So we've got you signed up to a gym. The next thing we need to do is to sort you out with the trainer. Remember, it's your choice. The trainer doesn't pick you. You decide who you want for a trainer. Um, some tips here. The first one is go for the oldest person you can find. Most so-called trainers are still in their teens, it seems to me. And you know what? The policemen look as if they get younger as well these days. Uh, <laughs> the older the trainer, simply the more experienced they're going to be. Go for a train of the same sex yourself. It's not a pick-up joint. If you're a very old man and you need to pay a pretty young girl to train you, then shame on you, really. <laughs> you're not in the gym for the right reasons. Um, South Africans. If you ever come across a South African who's working in a gym as a trainer, grab them. There's something about South Africans. I think it's sport in their DNA or something that just makes them really good at this job. And remember that you're there to do some work. I see far too many trainers allowing their clients to chat and chat and chat, and quite often they encourage them to chat, you know, because I think being a trainer, unless you take it very seriously, can be a very boring job. Now, there's no point paying £50, $100 for a session if all you're going to do is chat to them about what you've seen on television last night. That's not the name of the game. You've got a chatty trainer, chuck them out. Okay, so what should your expectations be from the trainer? Well, as I was suggesting the other day, um, you shouldn't use them mindlessly. Don't put your brain on hold while you go in the gym and just allow them to take you through a a set of exercises you don't understand and do it again the next day for um, a further fee. That's, That's the silly way of doing it. Get them to work out a really good routine and write it down that you can do by yourself for a month or so, then If you want to have another session, go back to them, check you're doing things properly, maybe add a little bit more to what you're doing. Um, That's the economical way to to use a trainer. When you do have a session with them, though, this is the mark of a good trainer. And this is why you need someone with real experience behind them. A good trainer will take you to a place that's beyond what you normally do and yet is still safe. So after the session, you will feel that you've actually gone further, tried harder, exerted yourself more than you would have done otherwise, but you haven't got into the red danger zone. And believe me, a lot of people do hurt themselves in gyms all the time. I've done it myself. So a good trainer will push you to exceed your own expectations, but will always make sure you're not in any danger. So why not give it a go this summer? Just get a little bit more active. And you know, there's one unexpected bonus as well. You'll find that uh, once you've started to do this, really just after one or two sessions, especially if you're doing it in the morning, which is when I like to do it, you'll notice that when you come back and start to to write, your brain is so much clearer. It's oxygenated. You can think better. You'll actually be a better writer. So um, it's got everything going for it. Why not give it a go? And now here's Eve with Today in Writing History. Punch, a British weekly magazine of humour and satire, was founded on the 17th of July, 1841. 
According to Spartacus.schoolnet, the story is as follows. One evening, Mark Lemon and Henry Mayhew met at the Edinburgh Castle Public House in the Strand, London, to discuss the possibility of starting a new journal. Lemon and Mayhew were both reforming liberals, and the plan was to combine humour and political comment. Others invited to the original meeting included Douglas Gerald, a journalist with the reputation of campaigning against poverty, and John Leach, a medical student whose drawings had impressed Lemon. During the meeting at the Edinburgh Castle, someone remarked that a humorous magazine, like a good punch, needed a lemon. Mayhew remarked, a capital idea, let's call the paper Punch. Popularity of the paper grew after initial difficulties and soon was one of the most talked about periodicals of the mid-1800s. It gave several phrases to the English language, including the Crystal Palace, a name it bestowed on the Great Exhibition Building in 1850, and the Curate's Egg, which resulted from one of the Punch cartoons for which the magazine was famous. Punch folded in 1992, but was unsuccessfully revived for a few years by Muhammad al-Fayed in 1996, closing eventually for good in 2002. That's it. More tomorrow. Thank you very much, Eve. Very fond memories of Punch there, and indeed of Alan Corrin, who was arguably its very best editor, and who I was privileged enough to have dinner with last year, shortly before he sadly died. Now to Donna for today's news. Thanks, Peter. A writer working out of a one-bedroom apartment using a Macintosh and some recording equipment has started a small publishing revolution. Scott Sigler's first book had 10,000 readers. The sequel had 30,000 readers, although I'm using readers loosely because Scott Sigler has never published anything on paper. He is, however, the world's most famous podcast author. His fans are described as junkies on his website. He releases his novels as audiobooks free for online subscribers to download one episode at a time. This week, he'll release his first physical book. He has a five-book deal with Hotter out of the UK. Will his podcasting success translate to bestseller status? He's already released a free audio version of his first book in the series and has allowed fans to download a free PDF version. He is betting that fans who like the online freebie will buy the book. Last year, a book version of one of his stories was published by a tiny firm that sells only via mail order. Sigler made it to number seven on the Amazon bestseller list number one in sci-fi, by asking all his fans to buy a copy on the morning of its launch. The books only sold 2,000 copies, but they created a sales spike. With no marketing budget, no advertising, no media coverage, and an artist nobody's heard of, they managed to drive it up to number seven, Sigler says. Now, other podcast authors who mostly publish on www.patiobooks.com have traditional book deals. Sigler says, quote, technology will eventually change how books are written. Now, hopefully, I'm ahead of the game. By the time people like Stephen King wake up to the Internet, they'll be on an equal playing field to people like me, end quote. Writers trying to break into publishing will be watching Sigler's success. Will podcasting revolutionize publishing? Well, I wonder. I've been following Scott Sigler very carefully. Um, he is a tireless worker, and anyone who runs away with the idea that uh, you know he's an overnight success, an overnight sensation, that's completely wrong. He's worked ex- incredibly hard uh, to build himself a platform, and that's the word that publishers use most often these days. It's what's the writer's platform? What's their visibility? Can they actually bring an audience? Can they sell books themselves, basically? And Scott Sigler has, has chosen the right platform for his writing, and, and no wonder he's been successful. But um, I say again, uh, 
enormous amounts of hard work have gone into this. It's, uh, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme by any means. If you haven't read Rick Perlstein's book, Before the Storm, about Barry Goldwater and the rise of the conservative movement, you'd better get it from the library. If you try to get it on Amazon, the lowest price you'll find is $131.09, with prices all the way up to $184.02. How did the booksellers arrive at these prices? Used booksellers choose pricing based on what other sellers are offering on Amazon. Many booksellers use software like Reprice It that automatically adjusts the price to keep ahead of competitors. Although you would think this would lower prices for consumers, apparently use of auto-pricing software actually stabilizes pricing. Low prices start an instantaneous machine-driven race to the bottom. Once one book is sold below market value, the price will then return to equilibrium level. This deters sellers from making lowball offers in the first place. There are even more extreme cases of very expensive used books that wouldn't ordinarily be considered collectible. Copies of a 1980 edition of The Energy Non-Crisis by Lindsay Williams are going for over $1,000. 135 biographies with paperback editions published in 2001 are selling for over $100. Few, if any of them, would be considered general interest books. They're mostly on obscure subjects. A biography of sci-fi illustrator Chesley Bonestall will cost $190.35. Pre-internet, nobody knew which books were desirable. But then booksellers figured out that unusual books were selling for crazy prices on eBay. So now, if it's rare, expect to pay more or just support your local library. Jen A. Miller has written an article for Media Bistro about microblogging to raise your profile as an author. She started a Twitter account to promote her book on the Jersey Shore. Then she sends out 140 character updates of what she's doing and now has a dedicated group of 200 followers. Her posts have been linked to local media blogs and she has sold books through Twitter. Since she had a $0 PR budget, this was a great way to find readers for a niche market. And for a writer who wants to create a brand, Twitter sounds like an opportunity to expand a network. Twitter users say it's less annoying than email, and you can scan for related posts to find other potential followers. So for writers looking to network with people who have similar interests, they may want to check out Twitter. You can also use Twitter to research books by posting questions on specific topics. And writers who have events can send short reminders. I haven't tried it yet, but Peter has started using it. Maybe we'll have some of our listeners tell us how Twitter has worked for them. Those are today's top stories, Peter. Links to these and other headlines can be found on The Right Report. I hope all our listeners have a tremendous writing Thursday. Thank you very much, Donna. And as she says, links to all those stories are on Donna's blog, rightreport, or one word, dot blogspot.com. And yes, I do Twitter. I do twit. Uh, I started doing it actually quite recently, um, really as an alternative to blogging. So I, I was finding that although I was quite enjoying blogging, it was taking up uh, too much of my time. So my own personal blog, which since we're mentioning all the links today, is petercox.info. Um, it's still up there. Uh, it's not really maintained at the moment, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to change it and make it just a sort of repository of articles, uh, mainly of interest, I hope, to authors and writers and people in publishing. Um, so less opinion there, just more information. It won't be updated very regularly, but when there's a big new subject or a big new theme uh, to tell people about, then I'll post it there. Um, but Twitter is is kind of addictive. Um it's it's less perhaps less interesting really for Europeans who've been used to sending text messages all the time than Americans who haven't had um, SMS for the same length of time as we've had in Europe. Uh, I, I quite enjoy it, but 
<laughs> well, just looking back at all the, the the tweets that I put up there, and you can you can see me if you want to at uh, www.twitter.com slash agent pete or one word a g e n t p e t e um just looking at them all because you know you've only got as as, as donna says 140 characters uh, they all look a bit angry actually <laughs> i look as if i'm angry of baker street complaining about something else uh, I, I, that's a bit of uh, i don't know i guess that's what twitter does to you but um, anyway if you want to follow me on twitter by all means please do and you'll learn all about the exciting things I get up to in the, the life of an agent. We've gone on a bit today, actually, haven't we? Looking at the time, it's over 12 minutes already, so i better shut up now. Tomorrow, Friday, very last Litopia Daily before our one-month summer break. So let's try and make it a good one. See you then. Catch Litopia Daily five days a week from www.litopia.com.